from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. The call to defund the police is gaining traction amid protests against police brutality and racist behavior. The term may be misleading, experts say, since what many proponents say they want is not just to take money away from the police, but to also increase funding for social services and crime prevention. Some mayors and city officials across the country have already signed on to the idea And as the nation continues grappling with a history of racism and policing, we examine what it would mean to defund police. That's next, after the news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. After the police killing of George Floyd two weeks ago in Minneapolis, many people are now questioning the role and the authority of police. Protesters rallying against police brutality across the country have embraced the call to defund police. And the idea is to divert money from police departments into social services that can prevent crime and address its causes. Proponents say communities need to radically overhaul their systems of policing because reforms can only go so far. The mayors of San Francisco and Los Angeles say they support the idea. Meanwhile, critics of the idea say reforms do work and should be the first course of action. In this hour, we'll dive into the concept of defunding police and what it could mean for your community. Joining us are Nikki Jones, professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley, author of The Chosen Ones, Black Men and the Politics of Redemption. Welcome, Nikki Jones. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Welcome. I'm also going to welcome Christy Lopez, who is a law professor and former Department of Justice investigator at Georgetown University. Thank you for joining us, Christy Lopez. Thank you for having me. And I also want to welcome uh, Jacqueline Helfgott. Jacqueline Helfgott is professor and director of Crime and Justice Research Center at Seattle University. Welcome to the program. Good to have you. Thank you. Let me begin, if I may, with you, Professor Jones. Uh, We're talking here about a movement, and I want to talk with you specifically about what's being done, particularly in Minneapolis, where the tragedy of the killing of George Floyd took place. But at this point, we're also talking about really remedying historic problems of racism and brutality and killings. And uh, the idea of defunding, uh, as I said in the introduction, it's not so much maybe defunding, but putting resources and money into other things that can prevent the kind of problems that the police are heir to, yes? Yeah, that's right. I like to you know, tell people that anytime we're talking about policing and, and, and talking about it in this way, um, about the problems of policing, we're talking about much more than policing. And certainly that's what folks on the streets are, are articulating right now. We're talking about the ways that systemic racism and policing are intertwined. Uh, we're talking about the persistent vulnerability of Black people, both to police violence and state violence uh, and institutional violence. Uh, and so the calls uh, right now are not only about uh, policing, and that's why, why calls for reform seem limited uh, to folks, because actually the calls and, and the grievances that are being laid out fundamentally aren't only about policing. So, so, so even the best and most progressive reforms will always be limited in addressing the larger systemic issues. What do you say, though, to the argument, and I'm sure you've heard it, that uh, the police are there for public safety. There are bad police officers, but there are also police officers, for example, who are kneeling and marching and who uh, maybe even are idealistic and progressive. Uh, What about the fact that people will not necessarily have the protection 
or for that matter, the benefits that police offer now? Well, as I write about in some neighborhoods, uh, including in the Bay Area, the police uh, can be present all the time and not make some people in the neighborhood feel safe and not actually uh, be seen to be guaranteeing safety. So I think when people ask that question about public safety, you really have to ask your question about what the police mean to you uh, and your, your orientation, your, your position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the police. And I think the, the powerful visuals that we've had through this movement of uh, officers kneeling and also the arbitrary unrestrained violence that we've seen directed not just at protesters but as journalists. Uh, we see these visuals and, and people can think that policing can be either or, right? It can be the kneeling uh, and the seemingly community engaged uh, police or it can be uh, that violence. But what I like people to remember is that the institution itself of policing has the capacity for both at all times. And it can turn on a dime to the more lethal kinds of violence uh, that we've seen. So what we should be thinking is, is not about uh, bad apples, but about the institution of policing itself and the degree to which uh, the use of force is restrained uh, at all, use, the degree to which uh, police are accountable uh, to the community and a set of community expectations. Uh, so we really have to be paying attention to the institution and its capacity for violence. Violence is central to policing uh, when we are, are thinking about how to address this problem. Well, as I said, in Minneapolis, they're completely revamping the institution as it's been historically in place uh, where policing is concerned. And Christy Lopez, I want to go to you on this. Uh, Christy Lopez is a law professor at Georgetown. Because uh, I know you've studied different police departments, and we can talk about that, beginning with Ferguson and uh, one of the more outrageous and, and tragic things that occurred there uh, in terms of race and the police. But I want to get to Camden, New Jersey, because that's a place that has defunded and sort of reinvented police. What's this experiment uh, done is, uh, by many people's lights, showing that you can reduce crime by pretty dramatic numbers even when you defund. Talk about Camden, can you? Yeah, I mean, Camden is an example of, Camden, New Jersey is a, an example of a police department that um, did uh, deconstitute um, and reconstituted. It came back in a very traditional policing way. And my um, sense is that Minneapolis will be looking for something a little less traditional, um, um, maybe dramatically less traditional. But um, what Camden did was to literally dissolve their police department, bust the union, um, make everybody reapply for their jobs, choose only some of them, um, brought in uh, um, one of the, the chiefs, Scott Thompson there, um, was given latitude to uh, really remake the department and to a large degree did to the extent that um, uh, Camden, which had one of the highest uh, homicide rates in the country, um, in, indeed in the world, um, uh, decimated that homicide rate, even as use of force complaints went down, community confidence went up, um, People were, um, you know, able, you know, to Professor Jones' point, people were able to feel safe in their communities. They were riding bikes where they had not been, sitting on their porches. Um, it's, it's a real success story in terms of uh, how we can remake a police department to be better as a police department. Um, I think a couple of things that I would note, though, about that. Um, one is that um, it took a lot. <laughs> it, it took a whole lot. And, I, and there is no other place in this country where, where something like that has been done uh, that dramatically. And the second thing I would notice, I would, I would note, is that um, former Chief Thompson, who I've, I've, ta I've talked with and worked with a lot, 
um, will tell you time and time again that he would give 10 of his officers for a boys and girls club. So even there, um, he is recognizing that there, there may be a need to divest from the police department and invest in other um, community resources um, and social programs to improve public safety. There have been uh, arguments put forward, though, and actually we hear this from Professor Helfgott, who is also with us to some degree, but that uh, there has been a lot of reform that, uh, in fact, now they're talking about national standards uh, on the use of force and a national registry uh, for police misconduct. Uh, there's also been certainly an attempt to deal with bias and all kinds of questions along those lines, which uh, are really a part of the whole picture. I'm just wondering, uh, you've been writing about maybe parallel tracks here, and I'd like you to address that. That is, maybe moving toward reform and then ultimately moving toward defunding and putting money into more uh, and different resources, preventive resources. Um. So, yeah, I, I think it's actually we have a responsibility to continue with immediate reforms, even as we seek this deeper um, sort of divest inverse uh, invest strategy. And that's because people are dying and being harmed right now. And there are things that we could put in place right now that would stop that bleeding right now. Um, so I, I really believe that it's incumbent upon us to um, move forward on um, parallel tracks. I. I understand the concern that um, if you spend too much time trying to fix your current police department without paying attention to these underlying issues, you will never end up in the place that you want to be and you will under undermine those efforts. Um, and you know that's what I learned doing reform work for um, over 20 years. Um, it became quite clear to me that you could make um, dramatic transformative changes um, through those reform efforts but unless you go outside the department and see, um, again, as Professor Jones said, that these are, these are institutional um, structural problems with racism and, and, and social inequity that, that go far outside policing. And we have to address them at that level to fix policing itself. Well, Jacqueline Halfgott, some say the way to fix policing is by changing the whole culture. And uh, to some extent, you uh, read an editorial you wrote you're talking about up in Seattle and the changes that have been made there. Uh, to a great degree, you feel that reform has been working and needs to be maybe uh, modified to some greater extent. But at this point, uh, on the right trajectory, as you see it. So. Yes, I, I, I would not go so far as to say reform is working. I, I, I would say, you know, I would quote President Obama in his 21st century task force on policing when he said, when any part of the American family does not feel like it's being treated fairly, that's a problem for all of us. I would also echo Professor Jones uh, when she said that the entire system uh, is, is, is a problem. I would go even further to say that there's a convergence of social forces that have gotten us to this place. Here in Seattle, in Washington State, Sue Rar, the executive director of the uh, Washington State Criminal Justice Training Commission, has implemented guardian-oriented uh, policing to replace warrior-oriented policing. She has worked very hard, uh, as many have in Washington State. She was a member of the 20, uh, Obama's 21st century uh, policing task force to try to change the culture of policing. And so you know, my uh, point uh, in the op-ed that I wrote and uh, is that uh, you know, police, many are trying to change police culture from within. Are we there yet? You know, has police uh, culture changed across the country and in every jurisdiction? Uh, is there a lot that we still need to do? Uh, you know, yes, there's a lot that still needs to be 
done. But you know, my concern about some of the um, messages from the defending uh, the, the police uh, proponents is that uh, you know I, I, I would hate to see us go backwards and um, you know dismantle and not be able to move forward on the reforms that have been made. I mean, we have you know what, what happens in criminal justice is that we're on a trajectory of reform to make change, and then because criminal justice is so intimately tied to media and politics, you know, uh, what, uh, reforms that are being made within the system go unrecognized. I mean, that happened in the 1970s when there was an article that came out on correctional rehabilitation and the media and politics, uh, it, it ended up coming out that nothing works in correctional rehabilitation, which resulted in uh, taking away all rehabilitation programs in prisons in America in the 1970s. That in part led to mass incarceration that many defunding and police abolition and prison abolition uh, proponents are, are you know, arguing uh, against. So my concern is that, um, you know, we, 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 we recognize the reforms that are being made, uh, take that framework to move forward to make the changes. And many of those changes I would agree with uh, in terms of transformative, restorative justice initiatives that can be built into the existing system. Let me go back to you, Nikki Johnson. Uh, Nikki Johnson again, is professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley and author of The Chosen Ones, Black Men and the politics of redemption, uh, there is the argument uh, that now, for example, no-knock no warrants and uh, military gear are being put aside, uh, that chokeholds are being put aside, the cameras are going on. I know there has been certainly a lot of reform, and uh, from your perspective, it's not going to do it. You, you really need to move toward what we're talking about as a movement of defunding. Say that, that this is really... A, a both end. And so I think that there has been criminal justice reform that's been consequential over the last five years. We've seen that in fines and fees. We've seen that in the progressive prosecutors movement. We've seen that in, in bringing racial equity uh, to pretrial. Uh, and so, you know, there have been important reform efforts. And at the same time, I think that the moment belongs to abolition. I think that the, the imagination uh, it, right now requires uh, abolitionist thinking. Uh, and, you know, as we, as all of this has unfolded, I've been thinking about Nicole Hannah Jones's, uh, hash, you know, 1619 project, where she makes the point that Black people are the perfectors of, of democracy. And there are a lot of people who agree with that point. Uh, but, but that's true because of moments like this, because Black people call for what seems to be impossible, uh, and then what happens after that moment. And so, I don't think you can you can think that that project uh, and that work and that argument uh, is, is you know is a is a sound or you can't agree with that and then uh, be defensive about defunding. I think that in the conversation that that goes along with it, I think we have to have an openness to the idea and explore the idea and actually understand that this is something uh, that people have been calling for for years and years and years when it comes to divesting from law enforcement, reducing the footprint of law enforcement, and, and investing in, in resources that actually deliver community safety. Uh, and so I think that, that we, we need to allow the moment to belong to abolition, uh, because I think that what comes next from that will actually move us forward. Well, the money would go, presumably, to mental health and to housing and to education. And uh, Christy Lopez, let me go back to you, Professor Lopez, uh, on this, because there has been progress. I was looking at a Monmouth poll 
that said more people believe now that police are apt to use excessive force against uh, blacks in difficult situations. Uh, it's at about 57%, and that's from 34% back in 2016 when we had this police shooting of Alton Sterling. Um, uh, this is a pretty dramatic uh, figure, I think uh, most would agree. Eric Garner's death, for example, when he couldn't breathe, there were about 50 demonstrations that were logged uh, with uh, uh, this recent killing of George Floyd. There were 450. So we have, you know, really made some substantial progress in terms of just the body politic and awareness. Uh, and a lot of people out there marching, a lot of people of all colors marching. So is abolition really ultimately the end point here that we need to reach? Anyway, despite? Well, I think a lot of people mean different things about abolition. Um, I took Professor Jones. I mean, I very much like what she um, means, or what she seemed to be saying, um, what she means by it, um, that we need to allow this moment to belong to abolition, that we need to be able to think that dramatically and that creatively um, about how we change our approach to public safety. For me, the language of abolition is really important um, also because um, we, there are elements of policing that um, are reflections and perpetuations of the very same uh, sort of state-sponsored um, coercion of, of black bodies and control of, of black bodies that has been with us for our entire history as a nation and, and before. Um, and that part of policing does literally have to be abolished. And, and so I, I actually, I really, I appreciate the language of abolition. At the same time, um, I don't think that um, what anyone, uh, except for very few, are looking for um, is no uh, police, what, and they may be called something else, but no sort of state-organized um, people to help, um, uh, you know, respond in cases where there, for example, is an active shooter or something of that nature. Um, I think what people um, are, I think what people are saying is that um, we can have far less of that, and we should be really thinking about um, how we spend our public safety dollars and really ask some very fundamental question, our very fundamental assumptions about what is a public safety issue and what is a law enforcement issue. And when we do that, um, we will find um, almost certainly that, um, you know, for example, the $6 billion that New York is putting into um, policing um, all the time and the, you know, the fact that LA has 54% of their budget goes to of uh, the police department, um, but that's probably not the best way to spend our money. That we, you know, 150 billion dollars a year in this country on policing is probably not the best way to keep us safe. Um, and we should be rethinking that. Let me just add that. because we're uh, we're broadcasting throughout California. San Diego just put 27 million dollars more into police, but they're also trying to reform and revamp them. Which uh, brings me back to you, Jacqueline Halfgott. Uh, Professor and Director of Crime and Justice at the Research Center at Seattle University. The problems of uh, police unions, the problems of legal immunity, and the problems particularly of biases, many of the abolitionists say are intractable. You have to reinvent police work and you have to redesign it and start at the beginning from scratch. What do you say to that? So I very much appreciate what Professor Jones said, that the moment belongs to abolition. I also very much appreciate um, you know, what, what Professor Lopez has said about redirecting resources from the militarized aspects of policing. Um, the, you know, I, I, I think the, the, the issue gets very complex when you talk about tearing, dismantling, and rebuilding. And we, what, you know, what I've seen at the front lines of the consent decree here in Seattle is that 
consent decrees uh, bring with them many of the changes that are being called for here. And you could see a police department changing from the inside out. Accountability processes, implementation of crisis intervention, training for every officer, um, you know, the uh, changes in use and force policies, transparency uh, in with data and, uh, you know, the uh, police processes, you know, all of those things have been put into place in agencies that have been under consent decree. So these changes that are being called for can be made within existing uh, structures and frameworks. Uh, there's been, you know, Seattle has a, a you know, community police commission and civilian uh, review. And there's, there's, there are many, many things that are, are in place that have already been transforming the nature of policing and um, public safety. In Seattle, the police work with, with social service and mental health agencies and um, you know, to, to address uh, many different problems and all of these people are sitting around the table. So much of what I'm hearing being discussed in the police abolition, well, in the defunding the, the uh, police discussion is already uh, uh, largely being done, not in a way, um, you know, not, I mean, there's a lot that still needs to be done to improve that, but let's take what we've built and change the way uh, policing and public safety uh, are done. I just, my, my only um, disagreement with, with what some of the defunding police proponents are saying is that we need to take away the money from the police because the police are making that change from within. In Seattle, they have a, a mental health uh, uh, social worker that uh, uh, an officer team that uh, has been in place for a number of years now, and they just last year got funding to, to have an officer and a mental health professional in every precinct. That money goes into to policing. So no, I do not uh, think that we, I, I'm a concern that if we take money away from policing, that that's actually gonna hurt uh, many of the uh, initiatives that have been, have been put in, in place to increase uh, police community engagement, crisis intervention and de-escalation in law enforcement, transparency, um, and, and, and a police accountability. All right. I'm coming up on a break, and I want to bring our listeners into this, and we certainly want to hear what your thoughts about. Do you support the idea of defunding police and why or why not? And how would you change the role of the police or really the questions that are looming here? Uh, make for more police accountability, really. Uh, there's uh, a number of comments coming in, which I'll read when we come back, uh, that are saying maybe we need to call this something other than a defunding move movement. But uh, we do want to hear from you and you can join us toll free. The number to call is 866-733-6786. Again, join the conversation and let your voice be a part of this. 866-733-6786 is the number for your calls. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. We're talking to Jacqueline Halcott of Seattle University and Christy Lopez of Georgetown University and Nikki Jones of UC Berkeley. And we'll hear from you, our listeners. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about what has uh, really been established as a movement uh, 
talking about defunding police with uh, Jacqueline Helfgott, uh, who's professor and director of Crime and Justice Research Center at Seattle University, and Chrissy Lopez, law professor at Georgetown University, and Nikki Jones, who's professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley. And we do want to hear from you. Do you support the idea of defunding police? Why or why not? And how would you change the role of the police? You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. Let me read a couple of comments. Tom writes, our bureaucrats don't get it. The people have spoken. Police reform is too little too late. It's dead on arrival. Let's put the peace back in peace officers. Let's do actual community policing. If you don't live in our neighborhood, if your kids don't attend our schools, then you cannot police us. We don't want an occupying force. On the other hand, we got a lot of people who are raising questions just about the whole notion of defund the police. A listener tweets, defund the police needs a better name. This is crazy. It's a gift for Republicans who can use it to flip swing voters who have no interest in eliminating their often suburban police departments. Call it reform police now or something. Uh, and Antoine says the language you use here is important. What happened in Camden could accurately be described as reform, rebuilding or reinvention, but not defunding. The term defunding sounds to me more like something invented on the right as a misleading and provocative way to dismiss well-intentioned reform. Are we writing the right-wing talking points for them now? Let me get your response, Nikki Jones. Well, to respond to the, the first comment, uh, I was struck by, you know, put the peace back in peace officer. And, you know, and just as, uh, you know, what this moment reminds us is that for some people, there has, the, the peace hasn't been in the, in the peace officer. Policing from its origin has been about policing uh, poverty, policing poor people, and policing race. Uh, and going back to the, the first law enforcement agencies or organizations in our country uh, emerged from the Barbados slave codes that were copied and pasted into the colonies uh, and targeted Black people who were enslaved at the time. Uh, and you know there was a, there was a moment in the in the South where um, white people didn't want the police. Right, uh, and they didn't think they needed the police. Why? Because then they had slave patrols, and they, and every white person was charged with policing the mobility of black people, uh, and that's the history, both in the north and the south. There's a history of policing race and policing blackness, uh, and that is what people are calling uh, calling on, on having rooted out in this moment that has not yet happened in policing, uh, and reforms that exist only within policing will, as I said earlier, will not do that work. That's an important historical perspective, and I thank you for it. I'm just wondering, though, what you say to the idea that semantically defund police is not necessarily the best or most uh, appropriate language politically. Well, I think you know, by what measure? Uh, and so if we if we see what's happened in Minnesota, the University of Minnesota, we see what's happened happening uh, in school districts that are getting rid uh, of police in schools, which I think is a good thing uh, for kids. And we see this effort to dismantle, which I do think is different from what happened in Camden, to dismantle and reimagine a system of public safety. Uh, I think that those are our are political ends um, that that we only get to if we use that kind of language. Uh, and so, you know, there's always a question of, of what might happen. Um, you know, politically, uh, we can expect, I think, a backlash from the right, no matter what language was used. Any call for 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 black freedom. Uh, is met with a backlash, and so we could, we, you know, we should expect that. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that the attention that's been given would not be given in this moment without this particular framing. 
Well, Professor Lopez, you've raised the whole question about police doing work that they're really not skilled or not really trained to do, uh, dealing with the homeless, for example, dealing with mentally ill, dealing with addiction, all of those kinds of problems. And I think this is an important part of the piece of this whole debate we're having or the whole discussion we're having, conversation. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are in response to a tweet from a listener named Michael who says police departments have a bad track record dealing with the mentally ill, often ending up shooting them. I'd like to see a special mental health corps come out to handle them. These are the kinds of things that uh, we're talking about in the way of reform mainly, but your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's um, that's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. Um, and as to the, uh, the language point, you know, uh, Campaign Zero and the Movement for Black Lives has long talked about invest, divest. Um, and I think because some of the people who started the defund movement want categorical defunding right now, that language has not been picked up as much, but that is really what we're talking about. Um, but I just quickly, before I get to your exact question, I want to just underscore that it didn't matter what this was called. It didn't matter what the slogan was. Um, we know how, you know, this this president works. We know how the right has been working. They were going to take this idea. In, the moment you floated the idea of taking money from police and putting it somewhere else, they were going to call people socialists. They were going to call people, you know, anti-cop. So we were going to have to do the hard work of education, regardless of what we called that. And, and and that's what we're doing now. Um, and I think that's I think that's fine. I think that the point about I think we have to be very careful. And, and this goes perfectly with the with the um, argument about words. This can't just be about rebranding. Um, we can't just call people peace officers. We can't just, you know, you know, change the you know, change the responsibilities from the police department to a mental health corps and hope it will be okay. Um, I know police officers who refuse to call the mental health professionals in their city governments because they are so abusive and racist. I have talked to them, and they would prefer to handle it themselves because these are good officers, right? It is. It is much more complicated and this is why we have to we have to really pay attention to that underlying um structural racism and, st and structural inequity as we go through this otherwise we're going to create new structures that are going to repeat the same old problems so i that's you know that may sound like wait didn't you just tell us that we're supposed to remake this and now you're saying that won't work either but my point is just that we have to um we have to really be really clear on how difficult this is and that there are no quick fixes and then it's going to require work on multiple fronts at the same time. And let me go back, if I may, Professor Helfgott, to you. Uh, question specifically about, you've been talking about Seattle, and uh, one of our listeners, Kate, says, in Seattle, do mental health professionals show up on police calls? Are they integrated into the team, or are they just at meetings? Yes, they are. We have a, there's a crisis response unit that is part of the Seattle Police Department, there's a crisis intervention committee that I, I am on that committee. That committee involves people from social services, mental health, emergency services, all areas of the criminal justice system to help the uh, police develop their crisis intervention policy um, that is part has been a big part of the consent decree. There's mental health office uh, professionals that go out with police officers to uh, uh, respond to calls involving individuals in behavioral crisis. Well, let me uh, go back to some more comments here, and let me go to you on this, if I could, Nikki Jones. Uh, Enrique says, the police are the fist in the glove of politicians and policy. If you don't like the behavior of the police, you must change policy or politicians. You agree? Well, I think that's what we're seeing right now. I think that's likely to come out of the movement. Uh, one thing I also want to underscore from uh, Professor Lopez's comments 
uh, it made me think about how important it is to not only talk about reform when people are talking about reform, but to talk about accountability. Because if you have change with no accountability uh, and, and, and no oversight, right, then, then the structures can very quickly morph back to, to where they were. Um, and I should, you know, just to be you know, clear in my own work, I have moved from a commitment to progressive reform to thinking much more critically about accountability, to being much more open and aligned with abolitionist alternatives, including the investing and divesting, the reallocation of resources. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that more people should be open to allowing themselves that, that evolution uh, and not have a kind of knee-jerk reaction to the, the, the language of, of defunding. But, oh, but, but use that as an entry point into understanding what it is that people are actually calling for. Yeah, Nikki Jones is a professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley. Let me go back to you, uh, Jacqueline Helfgott. Jacqueline Helfgott is professor and director of Crime and Justice Research Center at Seattle University. Very pointed question from a listener named Elizabeth who says, can you explain how reforms would have stopped Derek Chauvin? You know, that's a very complicated question because, yeah, Derek Chauvin was an individual officer, but he was an individual officer within a particular police culture. Um, I think that we need to develop better screening uh, processes uh, to, uh, in policing, and, and that's a whole other conversation. And at the same time, we need to work to change police culture. So you know th th that that particular incident is uh, uh, you know an incident that is you know that was horrific for for everyone uh, to watch. So I guess my my comment on that is that we need to change uh, both the get the individual officers um, that are not uh, responding to this this change in police culture. Uh, uh, we need to get them out. And we need to work to change every single police agency from the warrior-oriented, um, you know, historical militarization. Uh, um, you know, you know what a lot of people are talking about when they talk about you know uh, paramilitary uh, origins of the police. We need to to change every police uh, agency and changing that culture. Um, you know, we're, we're we're definitely not there yet. We have to go. One department at a time, and 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 make those uh, changes. So you're with uh, you're really with Vice President Biden here, who said uh, we shouldn't defund police. We should essentially continue on a reform track, and we need more reform, and we need some pretty dramatic reforms. But reform is the way to go here. Let me get your response to that, Christy Lopez. It's an argument that we're hearing from a lot of Democrats who are putting forth ideas here in legislation and trying to. Uh, move in again along a reform track that will really make a difference. Yeah, I mean, so I've been doing reform work for 25 years. I've, I did it with the Obama administration, and um, you know, to to Professor Hepgott's point, I, I think it is important that we recognize how transformative that reform can be, um, which is why I recommend going on a parallel track um, because it can be transformative, and it can actually save lives now. And to, to, to provide some very specific examples of how reforms um, might have stopped Dr., uh, Officer Chauvin and um, prevented him from killing George Floyd, you can start with everything with better hiring or screening that would keep him out. I wrote an op-ed op recently about peer intervention. Um, that is something that you can start that training everywhere tomorrow, and it will actually 
we all like to think we would step in and prevent something like that from happening, but we know that many people will not and officers face particular barriers to doing that. We can train officers to step up, to be prepared for how to handle that situation and they could have saved George Floyd's life. We could have a rule in cities that you don't arrest people for possibly um, passing $20 counterfeit bills that you provide. I think we have we have a loss of a uh, of a phone connection there. We'll try to get Christy Lopez back. Uh, but let me go back to you, Nikki Jones. There are those who uh, present the argument that, in fact, I'm looking at some tweets here and some listener comments. Uh, why don't we do what uh, they do in the UK and just take guns away from police? Uh, Again, we get back to politics with that. That would be very difficult uh, to legislate, not only by the, the Democrats, but by anybody uh, in the legislature, I think it's safe to say, at least federally. Right. I think that's uh, true. I also think that there's a fear of black criminality that makes it difficult for people to imagine the, kind of, uh, taking any uh, resource of violence away uh, from the police. And just to say something on the point of, of Chauvin and, and, and reform, um, you know, we are thinking about that brutal um, lynching, essentially, uh, that we were all uh, witness to. But we also have to think about what, what we've learned, what I've learned about Minneapolis since, and that, you know, there, there was, uh, a seven, I think it was seven times uh, Black people experienced the use of force, seven times more likely to experience use of force. Uh, an article I read, uh, there was a, a comment about routine anal searches happening. Uh, in the uh, police districts. Uh, and we know that these kinds of invasive searches happen all over the country in neighborhoods, in police, uh, um, in, in police departments before people are processed uh, further into the system. And so it is not just that individual officer in that moment. It is about a much broader pattern. And I think why people are so frustrated in part is because Minneapolis was a case study in reform. Uh, and, and at the same time, I agree with, with Professor Lopez that, that some reforms will save lives. Sometimes they don't, but, but some reforms you know, potentially can, can save lives and there are other good reasons to target policies uh, and practices, uh, but we shouldn't lose the and larger and more routine forms of violence that aren't captured on video but that people are experiencing and people are responding to in this moment as well. What about the significance though, Professor Lopez, about the number of police officers who are black or brown now, and particularly police chiefs in big cities? Unfortunately, what we've learned is, um, you know, it is actually true that if you have a critical mass of um, officers of color in a community, you do have fewer officer-involved shootings. And there's been some theorizing that the reason for that is that um, that sort of uh, threat, that implicit threat that we um, see from people, um, that, that w officers will see from black people will be less if they're used to working with black people. Um, that's that, what's one of the theories there. But other than that and a few related studies, we don't have a lot of evidence that um, um, hiring more black or Latinx officers is, is going to you know, dramatically change a police department. Um, and, and too often, um, it just really makes communities feel frustrated because they feel even more betrayed um, that officers who came from their own backgrounds are treating them just as poorly as white officers did. There's a listener named Tara who writes, and uh, I'll go to you on this, Jacqueline Halfglad. Uh, Tara says, I've noticed that our society spends a lot of money on programs and professionals who are reactive, such as police officers, attorneys, prison guards, we do need to refund areas that are proactive, such as Head Start, Universal Preschool, Public School, etc. 
Well, there's going to be a limited amount of money, and one could argue that in terms of budgetary needs, we should be doing that kind of funding. And so the argument goes, take away funding from police officers. Your thoughts on that, Professor Helfgott? You know, that's, I've been struggling with that myself because, you know, I've, I've been, I mean, I've been saying that again, the one thing I don't agree with is the defunding the police part, but all the other parts um, are part of the transformative restorative justice movement. Where does that money come from? Uh, I don't know, but I do know that the police are the first responders to a range of social problems. And that gets back to our discussion earlier about the convergence of social forces that have gotten us to this place. The police have had to deal with um, the deinstitutionalization of uh, the mentally ill. The, the, the police are the first responders to uh, many uh, uh, you know, social problems where money has not gone into to address those social problems. So, you know, if I, I don't know the answer to where the money comes from, but I do know if we're going to ask the police to be the first responders to uh, all of these social uh, issues from, you know, people who don't have adequate mental health care to people who don't have adequate adequate, you know, health care in general, to, you know, people with substance abuse uh, problems, to uh, people who don't have homes, to all of the uh, social problems in society, that defunding the police is not going to be the answer. So money needs to come from somewhere to do all of the things that uh, we are discussing here, uh, to, to change um, and, and address the uh, racial inequities and racial disparities, and, and and to make sure that that no one has is afraid of the police. I mean, I, I have great concerns about the the conversation we had, you know, the, the conversation about community policing. There were there have been many gains uh, in community policing over the years, but the fact that a population of people, you know, cannot look at the police. And, and trust them and, and see the police that way, that's a problem for po policing to address. And I don't think taking money away from police and all of the gains that have been made uh, over the many years in, you know, where we, uh, uh, many people from the inside have been trying to transform and reform uh, the policing. I don't think taking uh, money away from the police is the answer. There is an argument, and actually it was uh, an opinion piece that was written, a column uh, that was written by Max Boot in the Washington Post, and it's an argument that the big city police departments have advanced and have gone through some real shakeups and reforms, notwithstanding Minneapolis and some of the horrors we've been seeing recently, uh, but that the reforms have been real and they have changed police culture, as you've been arguing, uh, Jacqueline Halfgott. But the real uh, difficult problems, Max Boot argues, are in the suburban and rural areas where uh, police departments haven't uh, changed in, in terms of the culture, and you really can almost quantify that as being very little if, if, if much change at all. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there are police agencies that are not changing. I mean, I know, you know, when we talk about changing the warrior to the guardian culture in policing, um, you know, there are police agencies that, who are, that are not embracing that. And there are police agencies that need to embrace that. Um, so that is definitely a, a problem that needs to be changed. We need to, to change the culture of policing 
and a lot of times you know agencies are are not connected we need we need we, we, and, and and there are these suburban agencies that you're you're talking about there are pockets all over the country of policing you know we have a problem where different agencies you know they're not there's no grand oversight of all police agencies so we need we need we need leadership uh, that is able to to change the culture of all police agencies Ellie, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Ellie, are you there? Yeah, go ahead, please. Hi there. I just wanted to challenge the thought of changing the culture of police and um, applauding reforms made for, for police reform. All of these police reforms are made for what? Police respond to social problems with force. All it is is a Band-Aid that treats the symptoms of housing, education, and employment issues that we're talking about. I don't understand why you need culture training to explain to a police officer why they shouldn't be brutalizing protesters who are just saying Black Lives Matter. Clearly, this isn't just a few departments or a few offices across the country. It is the entire police institution. So it's more, it's more than just the culture. Clearly, the way behaviors and the way police have been treating protesters across the country shows that this is an institutional problem. Why should we keep funding an institution that responds with force and pretend that implicit bias training is going to change the way officers respond to black people? And let's take money away from them to actually solve the social issues that we're talking about. Why do you need a police officer with a mental health expert? There are so many government agencies themselves, like healthcare, education, that already exist. Let's take money from the police and use it for the government systems that already exist. If you need a healthcare division that maybe needs emergency responders, then let's build that into that institution, not an institution like police that was built upon slavery. And clearly it's not just the culture, it's the entire institution that responds in a racist attitude when, when the goal is just to respond to social issues with force. All right, Ellie, I thank you for that call. I want to get another caller on here, and that's Sam in Pacifica. Sam, join us. Welcome. Yeah, hi. I wanted uh, Christy Lopez to expand a little bit more on, um, she mentioned it a little bit, but the fact of how police unions are there nowadays really to protect bad cops, also hiring of those um, with a history of violence, as well as if she could expand a little bit on something we're not issuing and, uh, or talking about, and that's the hiring of ex-military people and then, you know, basically the militarization of our police forces. Um, and Christy, hi, this is Sam Casillas. Bye. Chrissy Lopez. I recognize your voice, Sam. It's an old high school friend there. Um, great to hear from you. Um, the, um, yeah, so police unions are a conundrum all into themselves. Uh, many of us consider ourselves to be big believers in labor. Um, unions, police unions act a little differently. Um, police unions, I mean, uh, unions generally are supposed to um, fight for the wages and benefits of their membership as a whole. And what we see too often in policing is that you, they will literally trade off wages and benefits. They will trade off a salary increase for a protection for a few officers, for example, to have their disciplinary files cleared after a year or to um, require a waiting period of days sometimes before they can be interviewed for a critical after a critical incident. In other words, what some police unions are doing is trading off benefits for the whole um, to um, in, instead benefit the few, and those few are the ones who are bringing disrepute to the profession and to their own agencies. That is a real problem, and we need uh, labor organizations and uh, to stand up against that. We need mayors and city councils to stop negotiating um, really problematic collective bargaining agreements with those unions. 
Militarization is also a really um, critical issue. Um, we have allowed our police agencies to become incredibly militarized. Um, we now have um, many thousands of SWAT deployments every year um, for very minor things. Um, that is why Brianna Taylor is not with us today because we overuse uh, military and military equipment. Um, there are some, there's mixed research on the impact of uh, having uh, military personnel come back into police departments. My own sense is that um, military personnel are more reflective of and will reinforce whatever militarized culture is in a department um, mm -hmm. rather than uh, dramatically changing it on their own. Um, but those are two absolutely important areas that we need to be focused on as we move forward. Yeah, no, I thank you for that. In fact, I was just reminded of the fact we did a program on this. Uh, it was a major news story here in the Bay Area. Uh, and some listeners in Southern California may not know about this. There was a group called Moms for Housing in West Oakland. They were evicted, but a tank appeared. Um, not sure why uh, police officers need tanks, but uh, I want to go to a comment here and go back to Professor Nikki Jones on this. Uh, first, let me read a comment from Annie to you and, and get your response, Professor Jones. Annie writes, I feel very confident about this because I feel the system is broken beyond repair, but I worry about the power that militarized white supremacist groups would have if we do not arm our peace officers similarly. It's kind of a troubling and sobering question, Nikki Jones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think these kinds of questions come up, and there are a whole set of questions that come up once you start thinking about abolitionist alternatives uh, and thinking about it, abolition as a process. Part of that process is, is, is really giving some deliberate attention to the answers to those questions. What does it look like on the ground? But I did want to speak to you know, a point that um, the last caller made around defunding, because I, I totally agree. I think that we defund all the time in government budgets. I don't think it is that difficult to actually defund police and shift and reallocate resources. And I spoke earlier about my, my own evolution and, and, and a big part of that is through the, the work that I've done. And I've seen what happens in high surveillance neighborhoods. I see the exposure to violence, to routine forms of violence. Uh, it, it may not be physical aggression, but, but young people are conditioned to respond to the police in certain ways. Uh, in ways that young middle-class white people aren't conditioned uh, to respond. They don't even think about their relationship uh, to authority. I've talked to young men who, who talk about having, getting these kinds of invasive searches over the course of their adolescence. And so I get to the point of our, the system doesn't need our defense. Who are we going to stand alongside? And if we stand alongside the young people, the young black people, the black men and, and women that I've, I've talked to over the course of my career and we look out then we imagine a different system. But that means that some people, an entire system, not just policing, but that means that some people have to shift where they're standing in this moment. Okay, uh, I'm afraid we're gonna have to leave it there. Although um, there are a lot of listener comments, listeners suggesting more psychological testing, listeners suggesting uh, uh, licensing of police, uh, and in fact, uh, another name. Uh, somebody, why not? Uh, call it uh, against racism as opposed to defunding or defund racism as opposed to defund police. But anyway, uh, it's been, a, I think, a very enlightening discussion. I want to thank all our guests. Uh, and it's up to you, the listeners, now to move forward on the information you've heard and the different positions you've heard this morning. Thanks to Nikki Jones from UC Berkeley and Christy Lopez from the Law School at Georgetown and from Jacqueline Helfgott from Seattle University. And thanks to you, our listeners. You can always let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. And for all of us here at the Forum Program, I'm Michael Krasny.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.